Shani Hill, you are the marketing manager at TDA Global Cycling. Thank you so much, good sir, for taking the time to join me today on the Fact Up podcast. Yeah, happy to be here. Thanks for, for thinking of me. <laughs> of course, man. I mean, you, you run, um, <laughs> I've been, we'll get to it, but I've been wanting to do a few of your races for as long as we've known each other, which is now a good decade. Mm -hmm. uh, but again, time and stamina is, is not on my side. <laughs> uh, but, you know, TDA Global Cycling has been called, you know, a specialist in long distance uh, trips, you know, best adventure travel company. For those who don't know what TDA Global Cycling is all about, give us a brief overview of the company, what it's about and what makes you guys so celebrated and respected. Yeah, sure. Well, um, we've been around since 2003. And the way we differentiate ourselves from every other bike tour operator, we think, is that uh, we specialize in really long trips. So they're multi-country, multi-week, multi-month trips sometimes. So in 2003, we, the founder, Henry Gold, uh, created a trip called the Tour d'Afrique that goes from Cairo to Cape Town. It's a four-month trip across Africa through Amazing. 10 countries. Amazing. Yeah, and so we've created a, a whole series of similar trips. Um, they're, they're actually not races, any of them. The, you know, the Tour d'Afrique used to be run as a race as well as an expedition, but all of them are sort of just run as a, as a trip where people cover the distance each day. And yeah. Right. I mean, you mentioned, you know, that Tour d'Afrique, it starts at the, at the pyramids of Giza, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. It goes straight down Africa to Cape Town in South Africa. Um, talk about the popularity of that course and talk about the logistics involved in organizing and executing a course like that, because it's, it, it goes far beyond just the cycle. It goes into the food, it goes into the accommodation. Explain that for, for listeners and viewers. Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, you bring up a good point. And if we didn't, if we weren't a company that really enjoyed problem solving and logistics, you know, this would this would not have happened. You know, we really like that part of it. And so for the, the tour, you're absolutely right. Um, the cycling is certainly challenging for the participants, but we're challenged with uh, finding enough food for a large group. You know, there's situations where uh, in Northern Kenya, we go through areas that are sparsely populated. It's, it's a desert environment and, and uh, water can be very hard to source. We also don't want to uh, overburden the local communities by, you know, buying out the, the whole bread supply if we can avoid it. So, you know, there's all these little details that are happening in the background and, and uh, we love it. We love trying to figure that stuff out. And, uh, you know, you have to do a lot of planning ahead to book the places you're going to stay and, and arranging for food drops uh, occasionally when, when we're in uh, more remote areas. Usually, usually it's, you know, just going to a local market or something, but there's, there's always got to be a solution. You can't, you can't fail on any particular day. The riders have to eat. <laughs> yeah, and they have to drink, right? I, was, I guess that's my next question. How do, you, how do you deal with those kind of challenges that come along the way, those adversities that come along the way where maybe water isn't as readily available as you want it to be, or you may have to find that tough balance of not raiding, so to speak, the local market and leaving food for the locals, obviously, but still taking care of um, the people that are coming through? How do you find that balance? Yeah, so we we uh, on occasion, like in the in the worst parts of the trip, we do have sort of water rations for our group. So there'll there'll be stretches of maybe two to three days, sometimes longer, but usually not where they there isn't enough water for showering, and it's just drinking water and water for cooking, 
and, and clean up and stuff like that. So, you know, the, that's one thing. And then we, we work with um, staff like drivers and, and local guides who have worked with us for many years and know all the secret watering holes and, you know, help us figure it out. Right. Yeah. And I'm sure by the time one week goes, you know, one week into the race um, or, or the cycling tour itself, I'm sure a lot of the people that are included and involved become sort of like family, right? Now you're in it together for the long haul. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've actually been doing a little bit of writing on our blog recently about the importance of the group, you know, and, and how the group can really make or break the trip. And uh, group morale is, is hugely important. And for, for the vast majority of our groups, um, you know, a, a lot of them keep in touch through the years um just just this past just at the start of uh, 2021 we had the 2011 uh riders all get together for a, a group zoom call to do a, a reunion you awesome know, uh, almost a decade later and i popped in just to see who was there and there was 25 or 30 of them and they're all you know just you know so excited to see each other so you know it's and we've had people meet on the tour and get married we've had you know, uh, family units come together like a, a father and a daughter and father and son and that sort of thing. So very interesting. That's, awesome. That's amazing. I remember years ago, I was reading that diarrhea and sunburn are your two biggest obstacles <laughs> when doing that course. Is that true still? <laughs> yeah, I might might add like saddle sore and, you know, all those unpleasant things. But no, you're, you're right. You know, the it, it's uh, dehydration is a killer. And uh, so uh, you, you mix that with people eating food that they're not used to and, and being exposed to bacteria they're not used to. And uh, it's a recipe for illness. And it, it definitely happens. Like a long trip like that, uh, you know, you'd be very lucky not to have one bout of that happening. <laughs> Especially for that trip through Africa, we always have a tour medic with us. Um, so, you know, very important just to monitor people's health and, and, you know, give them advice when they are feeling sick. Yeah, that's a, that's a that's a great point to bring up. Just just so people in the future, when they're thinking about doing something like this, that, that you know you're being taken care of every step of the way. It's not like we're going down Africa and it's like, all right, everybody for themselves, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. On your website, you know, you mentioned you know how sailors have the seven seas, mountain climbers the seven summits, marathon runners the seven marathons, um, you know, and now cyclists have the seven epics, the seven monster adventure. Uh, routes. We've we've talked about the Tour de Freak. Talk about the others, and why is each of them an adventure of a lifetime? Yeah. So the the ones that make up the seven epic, the the main trips uh, are the Tour de Freak we just spoke of, the Silk Route, uh, the South American epic, um, the North American epic, and and a couple other trips. So these are our longest and most challenging trips. Um, you know, they're all run in a similar way they have a the same support system but as you alluded to they're they're all unique beasts and they they all um allow you to experience a different part of the world different cultures um but you know the each trip has its own feel as well you know the silk route um sorry the tour d'afrique is all camping so every night you're camping whereas the Silk Route is a mix of camping and hotels. And, you know, we vary the types of accommodation based on what's appropriate, what's available, um, and that sort of thing. So you get a different feel for it. So in the Silk Route, you're usually camping for three or four nights, and then you have a hotel for two nights. Um, 
you're going through some fascinating places in Central Asia through the stands like Kyrgyzstan is a gorgeous gorgeous country um, and for me like it the, just the pure pleasure of coming to a place that uh, on its own you, you probably never would have thought to go and check out but as part of the this grand adventure you're just so pleasantly surprised to experience a place that you wouldn't have otherwise been to, you know? Absolutely. For, for people who are geography bums and geography nuts, give us an idea of start and end points when, when you're talking about the six other epics. Sure. So the Silk Route starts in Beijing and it travels uh, west all the way to Istanbul. So that's four and a half month, uh, I don't know, 12,000 kilometer trip or something like that. The, the longest of our epics um, are the two, so the North American epic is a, is a um, nearly six month long trip. It goes from Tuk to Yuktuk at the Arctic Ocean, and it comes all the way through North America to the Panama Canal. So um, that's such a big undertaking that we only run that trip once every three years. And obviously it's been disrupted a bit with the pandemic, but typically it's, it's every third year. Um, yeah, and the South American epic is similar length to the North American epic, uh, five and a half months, and it starts in Colombia in Cartagena, and goes all the way to the southern tip in Ushuaia. Wow, you know, I, I run, not run, I cycle forty k, and I feel like I'm a superstar. If I were, if I, if I were to do, you know, hundred and fifty a day, <clears throat> um, <laughs> you know, for people who don't have the time or the stamina. Uh, you know, you don't just offer the epics, you offer kind of something a little bit more kind of my speed, which is um, shorter amount of time and, and less, less distance, right? Talk about the five-week cycle routes, uh, such as the one in, in Madagascar, which, you know, you guys call the eighth continent for good reason. Uh, five weeks cycling, you know, around Italy, and you even have a, a route that goes from Chicago to Toronto, right? Um. We, yes, so I'll explain that one. So that's the, we have two new trips that actually encircle the the Great Lakes. So the the starting point is Toronto and we do a loop of the lake and then they transfer to Chicago and do a loop of uh, Lake Michigan. Wow. So that's that's a brand new one, uh, a post-pandemic trip we launched or mid-pandemic, however you want to call it. Yeah, right. But yeah, sorry. So the the trips, the shorter trips, which you know sounds a little funny when it's five weeks, but for us those are our shorter trips. Right. Um, Madagascar is a is a great adventure, and um, you know these allow people to to have sort of a bucket list epic adventure, but within a, a reasonable amount of time. Um, not everyone can take four months off work, obviously. So we we try to vary that. Even for our long expeditions, you can do like a two week segment of it as well. So we try to remain flexible that way. But, you know, going back to what you were saying, we hear it all the time that, uh, you know, I'm not fit enough, I could never do that. But that's also another great joy we have with our company is that we really do market to people like you, Jim, like we, we are uh, not taking on a lot of Uber athletes. It's really just people that get captivated with an idea and, uh, you know, we don't hold their hands through it, but we give them the, the truth. We tell them the truth about what to expect. Uh, we recommend some training. And the reality is that most people have it in them. It's really a, a mental game and physically they're capable of it. Um, and when you kind of set your mind to a big goal, like it, it, uh, it becomes a little easier, especially when you have someone else 
preparing the meals and, and like, in sh like uh, thinking about your safety and all the other outside factors. Right. And then boom, right? Shani, COVID hits, shutting down the entire planet. Um, you know, what are some of those challenges that you've now had to go through and continue, I guess, I guess to go through over the next little while until this thing kind of, you know, disappears or kind of gradually even goes away? Mm-hmm. Well, um, like much of the travel industry, you know, we just basically shut down all of our trips <clears throat> in March. And, uh, you know, we, we made some early attempts to, to run trips uh, in the fall of 2020, and, and it was just too soon. And so, you know, we spent all this time, uh, first of all, you know, making sure that everyone was refunded who, who wanted their money back. We were very upfront and very... Um, you know, we, we were just going to do the right thing with everyone. And we were thinking in the long term that, you know, if, if we show them that we're, we're doing this now, they're going to come back uh, for years to come when, when we're able to run trips again. So we tried to do things like that. Uh, we kept uh, speak, speaking to each other daily and planning new trips and reassessing the situation. Really just like anyone else, um, you know, we're no different. And, and I guess the only unique thing for us is that, uh, you know, the challenge for tourism, uh, most tour companies run a trip in one region of one country, whereas we're trying to cross land borders and, you know, the, the levels of complication get a little more um, thick for us in that sense. So, you know, what we do is we plan some alternative trips and, uh, you know, trips that we kind of keep in our back pocket. So um, we, we mentioned earlier that we have a new trip called the Great Lakes series. So we're based in Toronto. And so we thought, why don't we have a, a shorter trip where people could do a 10 day loop around Lake Ontario. And then you kind of string them together. And it's a it's a five lake series that they could do over two summers. So we're trying to get creative and, you know, think of new ways that we can appeal to people closer to home and, and in single countries in some cases. Yeah, and hope that those borders kind of open up sooner than later when the time is right. It makes yeah, your job exactly. far easier, right? Yeah. You know, when the global recession hit a few years ago, I remember in Toronto, many more people started to ride their bikes, you know, to school and to work. It was kind of more economical. It was more environmentally, you know, friendly. Um, you know, that bicycle movement has only gotten bigger and bigger. Is it any surprise to you that uh, bike sharing programs in North America, and we'll just speak about Toronto specifically, uh, you know, is it any surprise to you that bike lanes and the bike culture has kind of gotten a lot more positive? Bike lanes have been built, a lot more have been expanded. Uh, does that surprise you at all? It, it surprises me just because there's been a lot of um, uh, lack of inertia in, in Toronto. You know, it's been very slow going for people that, like myself, that cycle every day. You know, we we can be a bit self-righteous and think we, you know, because we see it every day that, you know, you, you could see how the city could benefit from it and, and the drivers can benefit from it as well because, you know, the more that we create multiple modes of transportation, the more space there is for everyone. Um, so it's been great to see it. It is a surprise to me, but uh, like many things, once a city councillor sees the results of something, they're on board and they see, you know, how this is a political advantage all of a sudden, instead of being, you know, this uh, war on the cars or, you know, the, the silly things that it's been in the past. So it's good to see. Right. 
Right. I've been to Amsterdam and, and I love the bike culture there. I was in uh, Copenhagen in 2019. I've, I've never felt safer riding a bike in my life than in yeah. Copenhagen. <laughs> uh, you know, cyclists have, you know, there's, there's curbs that's kind of separate the road from the bike lanes. Cyclists have, you know, their own passing lane, their own traffic lights. It's, it's amazing. Uh, what's the issue here, let's say in Toronto, when it comes to the battle between drivers and cyclists, you know, can the cultures come together eventually? Is there, is there like a mutual respect eventually coming, you know, what needs to happen? Is it, is it somebody getting hurt? Is it somebody's MPP getting hurt? And then finally kind of energizing that change and that need for change, you know, can the cultures get together and what needs to happen for that, for that to happen? Yeah, it's hard to change mindsets. And, you know, I, I empathize with someone that uh, has to commute from us, from the suburbs, from the north of the city or wherever. Um, their only option is to commute by car. And, and it must be extremely frustrating. Um, but the, the mindset can be changed for the policymakers and for people that can choose different modes of transportation. Uh, to think about it, you know, there's people talk recently about how we need to think not about how to move cars more efficiently, but how to move people more efficiently, right? Um, so uh, cars or bus or bike, it doesn't really matter. How do we get the most amount of people moved to where they need to go each day? And I don't think we're doing that right now. We're, you know, every time there's too much traffic, then we try to expand the, the highways. And, you know, that's a, that's a, uh, lose-lose situation because you know as soon as you expand the highways then more cars will fill up that space it's just the way it works um, but if you build bike lanes and and you in some uh, situations uh, deter car uh, moving by car then then you're moving some of those people onto public transit some of them onto bikes and you're you're encouraging you know these these forms of transport that don't take up as much road space and they're better for the environment so yeah, it's, it's a mindset that has to change. I mean, many of us have been active over the past few months. I feel like, uh, you know, many will still be in the mood to social distance uh, far more and far longer after this kind of dissipates. Um, you know, cycling is, is obviously human powered for the most part. <laughs> it's good <laughs> for the environment. Practices kind of safe social distancing, good for the heart. Do you see mm -hmm. cycling as a preferred way of travel, uh, at least in the near future and, you know, by more people? And if so, how does that change your marketing strategy, if, if any? Yeah, well, I definitely see that. And I think that the numbers have shown that during the pandemic that, that a lot of people have bought a bike or they've pulled one out of the garage and they've decided to cycle to work instead of using the public transit, for example. Um, so for us, you know, it's uh, for every one person that chooses to start riding and really enjoys it, you know, there might be someone eventually that chooses to do a, a weekend bike trip and then they want to do something longer. And, and at some point, you know, one of those people becomes our customer and they want to do a big epic trip. So if you have a bigger pool of potential customers, it's good for us and it's good for all the cycle touring businesses out there and yeah. for the bike shops and all, all of these things. So start small. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> right? Absolutely. And we've, you know, that's been one of the projects we've had during the pandemic is to create a, a lot of informational blogs and videos on, you know, how to repair a flat tire and how to pack your bike to take it on the airplane. And so, you know, we're trying to build in these things to make it easier for people to convince themselves to do a, a big trip. Here's a, here's a bit of a deeper question. How does cycling help in the bigger picture of uniting people, cultures, 
and and how does cycling help in understanding our world better well i think for in my experience uh in my own cycle touring and and just seeing our participants on our tours is you know it it doesn't bridge the gap entirely but what it does is when you're cycling through a place um we believe that people experience that differently than they do uh seeing a group of tourists on a bus going through their town and there's nothing wrong with that like uh, you know we've all been on different types of tours and experiences but uh cycling is unique uh, just as hiking is unique in that you're really exposed and you're uh, in some ways vulnerable and uh, I think some people really respect that and they they can relate more to someone who's not behind glass and you know in a, in a vehicle so you know that's a small thing but it, it just kind of gets you out there and, and you know gets you uh, out of your comfort zone um, you know it can be intimidating to travel when you don't speak the language and you don't understand the mannerisms and the cultures so that that kind of helps to just force it on you does that does that encourage you think more connection with people that would never have probably come into contact with each other if they were on a bus or if they took a car or if um, you know they were in a group um, is it is it always a special sight to see when when locals connect with people uh, that they never thought they'd interact with yeah absolutely um, you know I think uh, it's an and it's an exchange right and hopefully. Uh, you're getting something from that experience, but hopefully they are as well. Um, it's uh, like I, I find traveling in places like East Africa um, really eye-opening because there are there are huge challenges for a lot of people in these places. But being there in person just uh, humanizes everything and, and makes you stop thinking about uh, people as a massive uh, you know, as a country, as a, as a group or a, as a subset of something, they're, they're individuals, right? So they all have individual challenges and individual joys as well. So, And you, you start to figure out that we're far more connected than you thought. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. Like we all kind of know that, but we forget about it. Yeah. I mean, on a personal level, Shani, why cycling? How has, how has cycling helped overcome challenges in your life personally? Um, <clears throat> it's a very, uh, it's a great way to, uh, clear your mind. It's a very solitary thing. It can be anyways. Uh, you know, if you're having a hard day and you go for a ride, it doesn't have to be a, a hard ride, um, necessarily, but just to, to be out, out in the world and, uh, getting a bit of exercise, I find it's, uh, it's very valuable for, for someone's mental health. And yeah, so that's, that's an important thing for me. Yeah, definitely. Rapid fire, my good man. I'm going to ask you 10 questions. There's nothing rapid about this. Take your time. All right. Okay. <laughs> I'm intimidated now. <laughs> no, don't be intimidated. But yeah, it's a good thing you're drinking some water. What was the, <laughs> what was the first bike you ever got? Uh, I had a CCM. It was CCM. I don't remember the, the make, but that was the brand. Well, how old were you and, and how fast did you destroy it? <laughs> um. I was probably, I'd say, I don't know, seven or eight. And, and I was actually very, um, my brother destroyed a lot of bikes, but I okay. was very, I was the one who leaned it up against the shed and he's the one who threw it in the dirt. So. Gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> what do you prefer, cycling in a group or solo? Um, 
If I have to choose one, I guess solo, but I enjoy both. Yeah. If you're on a long ride, you stop to take a break to get a boost. What are you drinking? A grapefruit rattler or espresso? Oh, uh, let's say espresso. Okay. <laughs> All right. Favorite cycling destination. Oh, wow. Um, well, I mentioned it earlier. Let's say Kyrgyzstan is a really gorgeous and unique place to cycle. What is it that captivates you about that place? Oh, the, the mountains and the, the streams and uh, the rural uh, sites. Uh, yeah, just gorgeous place. Really, right. really nice. <laughs> a place in the world that's inspired you the most? Um, like a country or a, a place? Any place. <clears throat> any place that's kind of captivated you. Hmm. Um, I think, uh, Paris is a, is a place that's, you know, for just like anyone else, it's just a really interesting place. Um, I would say Rwanda is a, is a place I found very inspiring. You know, it, it was a place I read a lot about and it was just really interesting to, to be there in person, very beautiful and green and hilly country. Awesome. Finish this sentence. I've never been to blank, but it's on my list. Well, I was thinking about this earlier when you said Copenhagen. I've never been to Copenhagen, but it's really? definitely on my list. Yeah, yeah. Oh. And I've never been to uh, West Africa, which is where we run one of our tours. So I'm hoping to go there someday. Yeah. Awesome, awesome. Uh, what song gets you the most motivated? Ooh, um, what am I listening to these days? Uh, been listening to a lot of um, classic reggae lately. Okay. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Watching the sunrise over the pyramids, Shani, or the sunset from Signal Hill in Cape Town? Um, yeah, Cape Town. Uh, Table Mountain is very beautiful. So I was there and, and hiked up Table Mountain. That, that would probably be my choice. But right? py pyramids are not bad either. Yeah. Where do you feel your soul lives? Oh. Yes, I, that's an interesting question. Um, well, you know, within myself, but within my family, I think, uh, you know, they are, they are my heart and soul and, uh, you know, my, my partner, Bonnie and, and my family are very important to me. So let's, awesome. let's say that. Keeping <laughs> it real, my friend. Shani Hill, marketing manager at TDA Global Cycling Thank you so much for taking the time, good sir, to join me today on the Fact Up podcast. Uh, I wish you and your family nothing but health and, and happiness in the new year. And uh, we'll ride this out together and hopefully uh, sit down and have an espresso slash grapefruit rattler in the near future. Sounds good. Thank you very much. Cheers, mate. <laughs> Thank you so much.